Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Just Cincinnati podcast, where each week we try to focus on some of the local injustices in the area and highlight those who are working for justice and really bring about some tangible ways we can talk about justice in this this area in our region. And today I am excited to welcome a guest host today, the very Reverend Owen C. Thompson. Owen, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Kyle. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Uh, This is my first ever podcast in the hosting position. And so uh, looking forward to talking with Jerry Landry uh, about his wonderful work, his interests in our U.S. presidents and their stories. And uh, just really excited. So I'm going to shut up and let uh, you introduce Jerry. Thank you, Owen. And yes, we are excited to talk with Jerry Landry today, who works at a community college in North Carolina and is an expert on specifically what we're talking with him today about is William Henry Harrison, who many of you all know has a history here in the greater Cincinnati area. And he is out in North Carolina, and we are excited to bring you on today, Jerry. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me, Kyle and Owen. Um, very glad to be here. And uh, as you probably know, this isn't my first time on a podcast. I've been doing podcasting for uh, nearly six years now, and I'm, I was very glad to have the invitation to join you and talk about Harrison and talk about how presidential history kind of feeds into some of the things that we're seeing in the modern era. Yeah. And, and maybe our listeners are wondering, okay, we have a guy out in North Carolina who's talking about presidents and we have an Episcopal priest uh, here in Cincinnati who's uh, relatively new to this area. What in the world are we going to be talking about today? So let me bring all this together. So Owen Thompson is our new dean, which is the, the priest in charge at a cathedral and our Christchurch Cathedral, where incidentally I am a part of that uh, membership as well. And uh, Dean Owen is new to this community. He started back in sep- September, and uh, but not new to this community in the sense that his father was actually the Bishop of Southern Ohio uh, back in the late 90s and early 2000s. Is that right, Owen? Correct. Yep. Great. So th- this is much of a homecoming in some ways for Owen, and we're we're just as part of the congregation, we're excited to have him. Um, and then tying in uh, uh, Jerry's story, Jerry is an expert in William Henry Harrison, and that's actually how I found out about him. And I'm relatively new to this congregation and new to the Episcopal Church, and so I thought, you know, if I'm going to put so much time and effort and energy into this church, I want to learn a little bit about its 200-year history. And so I was reading a book uh, called Christ Church, Cincinnati, 1817 to 1967, and this guy named William Henry Harrison just kept coming up over and over again, and I saw his name was on the original charter that was signed in 1817 as one of the founders. And he was obviously one of the key people that started this church over 200 years ago. And so I wanted to start diving into his history and learning about him as, as a leader, as a, as a lieutenant, as a, as a uh, governor of a, a, a region in the, the early frontiers of America, and then, you know, eventually a president uh, and a leader in the church here at Christ Church in Cincinnati. And as I started digging into it, I stumbled across Jerry's podcast that was specifically about William Henry Harrison. And now his podcast has grown into being about all different presidents. But um, I listened to that one first, and I was just just 
fascinated at the complexities about this man who became the ninth president of the United States. And I saw how complex he was and uh, even how some of his legacy impacted and, and still shows through in our congregation today in our in our area. Um, many people will know that uh, there are fingerprints of Harrison all over this area. I drove on Harrison Avenue to get to the church here today. Uh, we have a Harrison High School out just west of us. We have Harrison, Ohio, which is a, a city to the west. Um, and Harrison himself is buried just down the hill from my house in North Bend, Ohio. And uh, so we, we have fingerprints all over this area of William Henry Harrison. And so I'd love to hear a little bit from you, Jerry, about th this man we know as William Henry Harrison and how he rose to power, his early days, and maybe just kind of give us a synopsis of, of who he was as a person. Absolutely. Well, it, it sounds like in the history of Christ Church that Harrison gets a few more mentions than he typically does in overall presidential history, usually he's relegated to just one or two sentences. But with Harrison, he, and, and that's part of what got me interested in him, was that he fit into so much of what was happening in American history during his lifetime, starting with his birth. He was the son of a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Um, he grew up in Virginia, and because he was the younger son of this signer of the Declaration of Independence and prominent Virginia uh, planner, he didn't really inherit much. He had to kind of find his own way in the world, and he did that through some connections. Um, his father knew this guy, George Washington, who at that time was president of the United States. And so he arranged for William Henry Harrison to get a commission in the U.S. Army. He ended up in what was then the Northwest Territory, which is now um, Ohio, Indiana. And, and principally, like at that point, he moved to what is now the Cincinnati area. He was involved in what's been dubbed the Northwest Indian War. Um, and then he went on to become the governor of the Indiana Territory when that was separated from uh, modern day Ohio. In his tenure as uh, governor of the territory, he was responsible for um, negotiating treaties with native peoples, trying to acquire more lands. Um, he ended up getting involved in the Battle of Tippecanoe, which was kind of a, a prelude to the War of 1812, um, which in, in which we declared war on Great Britain, ended up in this um, three-year conflict that ultimately didn't result in any territorial gains, but has been dubbed the second American Revolution because it really established that the United States was kind of its own nation, that it was going to chart an independent path. And Harrison played a, a key military role in that conflict. Um, he was the commander of one of the few um, army victories in that conflict, uh, the Battle of the Thames. 
Harrison went on to, you know, after he left the army, he came back to the Cincinnati area. Uh, he ended up, he was politically involved for a bit, but he, he really didn't rise too much in prominence. He did end up uh, serving a, a brief tenure as the U.S. Minister to Columbia. Um, but then you fast forward to the 1830s, and this is the, you know, what's dubbed the Jacksonian era. Andrew Jackson is president, another prominent uh, general from the War of 1812. And a new party develops kind of in response to Jackson from kind of some disparate parties that came together and really their focus was to oppose Jackson. And slowly but surely Harrison's name starts to rise. And in 1840, Harrison is put forward as the Whig candidate for president against Andrew Jackson's chosen successor, uh, Martin Van Buren, who succeeded him in the presidency. Um, Van Buren was running for re-election, but it was a time of economic um, downturn uh, right after Van Buren became president. We went into what was then known as um, a panic, which we now know of as, as a depression. And so Harrison was able to provide this this military background, this military hero. He was a figure that that folks from the Whigs from across the nation could rally behind. And so he ended up winning election in 1840. He beat uh, the sitting president, Van Buren. At that point, Harrison was the oldest person to be inaugurated as president. And he ended up giving one of the longest well, the longest inaugural address in U.S. history to date. It was a, the day was rainy, cold. And so there's been this, this misconception that he caught pneumonia giving this long address. And that's what he died from. Turns out that that's not the case. He did have a few weeks where he was of good health. He was doing what presidents did in that era and getting things started, getting his administration started, but he did end up contracting an illness. The treatment that he had only made things worse. And so a month after his inauguration, he ended up passing away. And thus he is to date the person with the shortest tenure as president, just one month. But in that, and that's part of why he really doesn't get much attention in terms of presidential history, but the fact that he knew so many folks, the fact that he was involved in so many important moments in American history and the legacy, and in particular, his role in the settlement of the Northwest Territory and the complex legacy that that leaves um, I think that Harrison deserves more attention. And I think in studying him, he provides a lens wherein we can understand so much more about the legacy that we are still dealing with today, the legacy that we're still moving forward from and how we can 
how we can understand, better understand our history and try and build a better future. So let's talk about some of those complexities. I know one of those is in 1794 when he was part of the Battle of Fallen Timbers up near Perrysburg, Ohio, Maumee, uh, near Toledo in Northwest Ohio, what, what is today Northwest Ohio. And he was a lieutenant at that time in, in General Anthony Wayne's army, right? Yes. And they were battling with the Native Americans in that area and defeated them, correct? Yes. And, and it was a decisive victory. Yeah. They, it, it, it was, I read a little bit about it and it, it, it seemed pretty bloody. And um, it resulted in the Treaty of Greenville, which essentially moved all of the Native Americans up north of Greenville, Ohio, and, and ended those, those fighting, uh, those battles. Um, but it didn't last long, right? It, 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 it uh, that those treaties were not held up. And of course, Ohio became a state in 1803. And so those people were pushed even further out. Yet, as I read through that, um, it's really evident that President Harrison, or then uh, Lieutenant Harrison, and, and later General Harrison, was a proponent for being somewhat civilized in his interactions with Native Americans, right? He was, he was a step beyond uh, not wanting to just slaughter everyone, but obviously, in in our terms today, he was he was also, you know, displacing people. So maybe maybe talk a little bit about that and and um, some of his interactions with Native Americans, as well as he was a slaveholder, um, but he also was a part of an abolitionist group early on. So maybe talk about some of those complexities a little bit. Absolutely. So the the Battle of Fallen Timbers was at kind of the end of what's been dubbed the Northwest Indian War, which um, basically, and in, in with the conflicts of that time and as westward expansion continued on. So um, after the American Revolution, there was this push for folks from both the North and the South on the East Coast to move west of the Appalachians. But those lands were already occupied. They were already settled. Native peoples had lived there for for generations and they had already had some native peoples who had been displaced from settlements east of the Appalachians who had moved westward as the the push kept continuing that caused strains on societies and cultures and so Harrison when he joined the army really the army's role at that point in history was more focused on those west those western settlements because naturally the people who were already there didn't want to be displaced they didn't want to have these new folks come in and start taking their resources cutting down the forest taking what you know the hunting grounds the areas that they had lived they they had been on for generations. Um, there was this push and it started at the top with George Washington. George Washington felt that we really should negotiate treaties. You know, even at that time, there were people who were proponents of, well, let's just go in and force native peoples out. And George Washington President Washington said, no, we need to negotiate treaties if we're going to acquire more lands. 
But in that, the treaties weren't always, the treaty negotiations weren't always conducted on a, a fair and equitable playing field. For instance, you know, how can anybody necessarily speak for all the peoples in those areas, um, considering that the, there was no kind of centralized government? And so they would at times just find somebody who would say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a leader. I'll be more than glad to, to sign this treaty for you. And then once other folks started learning about it, hold on, we didn't give our consent to this. We don't want to leave our homes. We don't want to move somewhere else. And the government would turn to that piece of paper. Oh, well, here's here's our proof. We This is now our land. Also in that, sometimes the treaties would be written out in such a way that they wouldn't necessarily let the folks who they were negotiating with know all the terms or know all the nuances of the terms. And so again, that would come as a surprise. Oh, well, no, we didn't say that. That wasn't what we meant. Oh no, we've got this piece of paper that says that that's what you signed. That's what you're saying. Um, also often they, you know, negotiators would use, alcohol, they would use bribes, anything to get folks to sign this piece of paper that then could be utilized to force people out and create new lands for settlement. Um, as you said, Kyle, William Henry Harrison really rejected these more unscrupulous means of negotiation. However, in his role, and especially when he became um, governor of the Indiana Territory, that was one of his main focuses. And his orders from President Jefferson at that point were, get as much land as you can as quickly as you can. We need more lands for settlement. And so, in his tenure, he negotiates all these treaties and acquires all these lands. But and, and even though he and, and he tried to make a point of, oh well, this is I'm, I'm doing this in a more moral way. I'm trying to you know crack down on folks who are selling alcohol to native peoples. Uh, he saw it as taking a more moral approach. However, ultimately the result was the same. It created, it displaced people. It created, as, as folks moved into new lands that were already occupied by other folks, this created conflict. And Harrison, in his role as the territorial governor, ended up having to deal with some of these conflicts and in particular with Tecumseh and his brother, the prophet who started leading this movement to push back again, like with what was dubbed the Northwest Indian war. Um, you have these, these native leaders who start to say, you know, no, we're not going to negotiate any more treaties. No, we're not going to move off our lands anymore. We we've given you more than enough. And Harrison 
gathers up forces, he takes up arms, and he marches against the forces of Tecumseh and the prophet. And this ended up with the Battle of Tippecanoe, which was basically they were marching to this this place that was called Prophet's Town. And it ends up, you know, they camp for the night and native forces surprise them in the night. They're able to to fight and, and push them back. And when they get to Prophet's Town, it had already been abandoned. They burn the entire town. They burn the crops. They found evidence that it wasn't solely, you know, it wasn't just the native peoples who were leading this push, but they were also being encouraged by the British because the British government wanted to keep this area destabilized. They didn't want a strong United States in this region. You know, they had their own interest in what was then the Indiana Territory. And so eventually, you know, this leads into the War of 1812 and some of the conflicts that led to that. But, you know, he did play this role in forcing Native peoples, you know, getting Native peoples to have to leave their lands. And this is a legacy that, again, you know, we are still dealing with this today. And, and it kept on for generations after generations, decades after decades. It wasn't the policy that led to the Trail of Tears, but looking at this from a 21st century standpoint, we do really have to question, you know, what what does this legacy, you know, what culpability does someone like Harrison have in this destruction of cultures of societies of peoples you know what and what does that what do we do with that how do we how do we move forward with that and how do we make sure that our society is more equitable and not repeating the same mistakes yeah, and he had a complicated history with slavery and abolition, too. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. Yeah, so being from a prominent Virginia family, of course, the Harrisons did enslave people. And um, Benjamin Harrison, his father, was you know a, a prominent slave owner. Um, Harrison when he was still in Virginia and still, you know, quite young, he was um, at the point of college age. He did at one point join an anti-slavery society. And of course, when his father heard this, because his father, again, prominent slave owner and saw his family's legacy and future in slaveholding, of course, he, he, railed against this. He was like, what are you doing? You know, do you not realize how I've been supporting you for all of your life? Um, Harrison did end up in, inheriting some enslaved individuals, did end up owning some enslaved individuals, but part of, um, with his move to the Northwest Territory where slavery was outlawed, 
slavery did still exist in the Northwest Territory. It kind of operated under the radar. It wasn't technically legal, but there were still some folks. But of course, it couldn't be prominent plantations like in Virginia. But Harrison, again, during his tenure as in the Indiana Territory, he became close with folks and leaders who came from Virginia, from southern states and southern areas. And as they came into this new territory, they started asking the question, well, why is slavery illegal here? Why don't we legalize slavery? And Harrison wasn't necessarily opposed to that. And there was a movement while he was governor to legalize slavery in Indiana. It ended up failing. And so Indiana, whenever it progressed to statehood, became a free state. But there was this push at the time for the expansion of slavery. And Harrison wasn't necessarily a strong proponent for it, but he also wasn't necessarily opposed to it either because he did see that there would be advantages and it would attract people. It would attract new settlers from the South. Later on, and and I found this letter, and this was, I believe it was in the 1830s. At that point, he was writing to a male relation who was still back in Virginia. And at that point in the 1830s, you know, slavery still existed in Virginia, but because the soil had pretty much been stripped of most of its nutrients by aggressive tobacco planting, plantation operations weren't as profitable as they were, as they had been in earlier decades. And so he still got relations who are trying to be planners in Virginia. It's not working out so well. And Harrison had this letter that he wrote to a, a male relation and encouraging him to come and move to Ohio, Indiana, some of the, you know, move to the Midwest, get away from slavery. But it wasn't so much from a place of that slavery is wrong, that slavery is unethical. I still remember reading this letter and, and he was talking about, you know, you realize that, that we're going to have a turning point. We're going to have this place where enslaved people rise up and you need to be out of there. You need to get out of this right now before that happens. And there was this, this fear of slave owners, of uprisings and rebellions and, and being murdered by the people that they enslaved. And so that also points to like, even for people who were anti-slavery at the time, and I actually had a discussion um, with, and with somebody recently who asked, you know, well, what's the difference between anti-slavery and abolition? And at the time you could have people who were anti-slavery, but it wasn't necessarily from a place of an, an ethical reason. It was more, well, what is this doing to white people? 
what is this doing to white culture? And you would have people who are anti-slavery who said, well, even though these people who have been enslaved have been here for generations, well, this isn't really their land. We need to either move folks to some part in the West, designate a territory that they can go to, or, you know, can we arrange for recolonization in Africa? It still came from a very racist and unequitable place, these sentiments. And Harrison, of course, was a product of that time. And again, that's part of his legacy that is complex and that, that we do have to, that we do have to deal with, that we do have to stay with and talk about because that in turn is part of our legacy. You know, where are we at as a society? Where are we at as a culture? Where are we at in finding a way, an equitable way forward? So I wonder, Owen, if you would, you know, as as the most recent dean of this cathedral and um, hearing that history of, of one of our founders, I wonder if you would reflect on that a little bit as, as being in the seat that you are in, uh, some of your thoughts on that. No, uh, thank you. That This is very fascinating to, because first and foremost, you know, being the first uh, African-American um, rector not just of the cathedral, but of Christ Church Parish in and of itself, uh, is a testament to the times of that we're changing, um, and and for the better, and in some cases, as it may feel for the worse at times. Uh, it's hard to go forward and move forward uh, if we do not have an understanding of our past. And for me, this is so helpful because two years ago, uh, in the diocese of New York, where I came prior to coming here, where I was prior to coming here. We passed a resolution in our general convention to have all churches uh, in the New York region um, that have benefited from slave labor to explore their histories and to either come up with reparations or some type of acknowledgement of that history so that there is an awareness, so that there could be steps to move forward uh, towards passive understanding, reconciliation, uh, renewal. Um, and I find this learning more about uh, President Harrison, uh, I pray will do the same for us as a cathedral. Um, but I also want to say that it's fascinating too, because we tend to, from our you know, 21st century perspective, you know, we look at individuals like Harrison, like Jefferson, um, who we knew were uh, slave owners and, and the like. And, and it's easy to, based on the egregious nature of this this sinful act, most uh, egregious act against a fellow human being um, to paint them in the, in the category of villain and, and so on. And, and that kind of shuts down the conversation. Uh, but I think when we enter into the historical um, context of which they, which they live, we do see, as uh, Jerry had mentioned, you know, he, they are products in some cases of their time. doesn't excuse certain behaviors, but it certainly provides us opportunities to see that these were flawed, broken human beings uh, very much like ourselves, living in a flawed and broken world. Um, and the hope, of course, is that we can learn from their actions, from their mistakes, uh, and make sure that we are building 
something new so that the legacy that we leave uh, as let's, let's say Christ Church Cathedral in the 21st century will be one where we're known as uh, a church for 200 years, despite our founders, um, have been a place that is a beacon of hope, a haven of healing and welcome uh, for, for all. Um, but it's important, I guess, you know, to know where we came from again, uh, so we can go forward in a place of wholeness and, and fullness and um, with clarity. So I, I appreciate uh, all of this that's been brought to the forefront. And I hope that more of our members, uh, particularly new members who are joining us, uh, will read our history um, and recognize that they have opportunities now to write new chapters uh, in that book, if you will. Yeah, and, and Jerry, um, incidentally, is also a part of an Episcopal church out in North Carolina, and I know you have been a part of some similar work. Maybe tell us just a little bit about what, what you're looking at as, as a historian and as a member of a church out there um, and some of the, the unique history that you may have. Uh, what are some of the things that you all are doing and talking about? Absolutely. So I'm a member of St. Albans in Davidson, North Carolina, and we have had conversations for a number of years. And in the last, let's see, in the last couple of years, I can't remember exactly when we started the group, but we we did start an anti-racism group. And we started with this idea of well, first of all, we've got to do some self-examination, you know, as individuals, as a parish, what, what biases do we have? What privilege do we have? You know, where are we at? And with that, we did some reading, we had conversations we had some members who were part of other efforts in the community trying to do as much education and self-education as possible. And in that, always trying to remain focused, okay, well, what are areas that we can improve? And looking at everything that we do, you know, every, every mission, every group that we have, what can we do to be more equitable? What can we do to move forward in a better place? And um, in the Diocese of North Carolina, likewise, there's been much work done um, trying to answer Bishop Curry's call to become beloved community. And with that, in the, the Diocese of North Carolina, uh, we do have some historically black congregations that we've tried to work with over the years because you know, they often historically didn't get much attention and didn't get an equitable place. And so trying to as a diocese, support those historically black congregations and acknowledge that legacy and, and trying to make sure that we all move forward together. Um, likewise, at the community college I work in, you know, 
the population that we serve in the Charlotte area, uh, we had a study that came out a few years back that, you know, Charlotte of metro areas in the U.S., we were 50 out of 50 in terms of social mobility. And so that's led to conversations across our community and trying to have our educational institutions as active partners in that. What can we do? Where, where did this inequity, you know, what are the roots of this inequity and what parts of our, our society and our structures, our laws, our government institutions, everything, what can we do to make sure to remove barriers to folks who have suffered, who, who have, have faced generational inequity, generational generational issues. And it, it's the more you learn about it, the more you explore, the more complex it becomes. And I think that folks, and I, I've talked with folks before that just felt, well, this is just, this is a larger problem. This is so complex. What do we do? You know, how, how can we ever change this? And for me, it always comes back to my faith as an Episcopalian, as a Christian, having faith that we will do everything that we can every day that we can to try and move that needle just a bit further. We're not going to be perfect. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to stumble and fall. The important thing is to keep going and to keep trying to do better and to learn and to be humble about our imperfections and the imperfections that we've inherited. Well, what a great way to end. Uh, and Jerry, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and knowledge about William Henry Harrison and and your your extra knowledge and how that uh, interacts with our faith and uh, institutions that we're a part of. And I just want to thank you for your time today and, and for sharing that, that compassion and that heart and that, that perspective. And I'd love um, for you to highlight any areas people can find you or learn more about you, maybe your podcast, if they're interested in learning more about uh, these presidents and some of our history. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for this great conversation. I look forward to hearing more about Christchurch's journey through this, this process of, of exploring the past and moving forward in the future. Um, as for me, I'm available on uh, all the major social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, you can search for the Presidencies of the United States. Anywhere fine podcasts can be found. Uh, the website is presidencies.blueberry. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. 
And again, just thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you so much for this conversation and look forward to hearing what the future has in store. Thank you, Jerry. And any closing thoughts you have, Owen? I want to echo the sentiments that you just shared about just thanking Jerry uh, for his work, uh, for his ministry, um, and for reminding us uh, of who we are, where we have been, so that we can know where where we can go. Um, And so I just want to say thank you and uh, looking forward to, as I continue my journey here as the Dean of the Cathedral, to this journey of discovery and writing a new history, new chapter uh, with these amazing people such as Kyle um, and others. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you both. And thank you so much for your time. Blessings. Our theme music for Just Cincinnati was generously provided by the internationally renowned but locally based singer and songwriter Kim Taylor. More of her intimate and folksy music can be found on her website at kim-taylor.net or wherever quality music is streamed.